Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought... In that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello again, everyone. Welcome to Tech Stuff. My name is Chris Paulette, and I am an editor at HowStuffWorks.com. Sitting across from me, as he always does, is senior writer Jonathan Strickland. Life's like a movie. Write your own ending. I'm sorry, do you do you have a frog in your throat? <laughs> a little bit. Um, so this is part two of our movie-making podcast uh, series, and uh, we're going to be doing a few more episodes about making movies in the future, although there'll probably be some buffer episodes uh, between uh, this and they, because... We don't want to just turn into the movie-making podcast. Uh, but but it turns out there's a lot of tech behind making movies. Yeah, amusingly enough, we uh, we had intended this to be two episodes, one about what happens when you're making the movie and then what happens afterward. And as it turns out, uh, there's probably going to be 
enough material to create many more of these podcasts. So we're going to just pick a couple topics today and in post-production, what happens after the movie has been shot. And, uh, you know, we'll get through what we can get through and the rest of it we'll shelve until later. Right. So future episodes might have information such as creating soundtracks, doing special effects, um, and actually just getting sound onto a film. Uh, we didn't even touch that in the last one. We had nope. totally intended to, but 30 minutes went by so quickly. So let's look at editing films and talk about the uh, the process and how it started. Okay. So the earliest films were these static one-shot films. It was, you know, they, essentially the camera was was set running, and then they captured stuff that happened in front of the camera, and that's what you got to see. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. we're talking like these are the earliest, earliest films back when the medium was brand new, the technology was brand new, the industry uh, was being born. Yeah, there were there was no such thing as a movie star at this point. The right. movie stars were things like a train going by, that kind of stuff, because it was really proof of concept at this point. Uh, and it took a big leap to get to the point where we started to edit film. And by leap, I don't mean just technology, because actually the technology, at least the early technology of film editing, it was incredibly simple. It was essentially a pair of scissors and some tape. Mm-hmm. What The leap I'm talking about is a psychological leap. Now, it's hard for us to imagine this now, because we've all lived in the era in which movies and television are everywhere. Mm-hmm. But think back to, imagine that you are in the age, actually, you know what? Wayback Machine. Get in. Here we go. Isn't that copyrighted? All right. Our time travel machine. Patent pending. Let's see. We're just going to set this to the beginning of, let's say, the 20th century. Okay. All right. And here we are. Beginning of the 20th century. Now... We're talking about a time when entertainment was essentially you would go to a, uh, you know, a, maybe like a vaudeville theater and watch a live show. Mm-hmm. So what you're used to seeing are uh, uh, actors coming out on stage where you can see the actor. Uh, you watch a sequence from beginning to end and you get one view and that's it, right? Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. might change some scenery between scenes, but other than that, you know, you're watching a scene play in full, no change of perspective. Right. Film gave you the opportunity to use multiple perspectives in one scene. So you could have two people talking, but you could have the camera focused on one character for part of that scene and then take a totally different shot and focus it on another character for the rest of that scene. We see this all the time in any sequence that has dialogue. Sure. Yeah. So you, you might be like over the shoulder of one character and you're looking at the face of another and then it switches views. Well, in the earliest days of filmmaking, no one knew that that would work. Mm-hmm. Because no one had done it before. No one had thought, is the human brain capable of following a sequence of events that are happening at different perspectives and make that one narrative? And it turned out, yes, we can. And once we were able to to establish the fact that it doesn't really matter where you place the camera, it doesn't really matter where you make the cut, as long as continuity is preserved, uh, people will follow and, and go along with you. And they, they have no trouble thinking, oh, well, this is a continuation of that scene. Right. But before we tried it, we didn't know. It might have been that you would cut from one perspective to another and the whole audience go, what just happened? I don't understand anymore. This doesn't make sense. I'm leaving. 
And I'm sure there are people listening who are saying, no, that's not possible. Of course it was going to work out like that. But you don't know until you try. No, no. So, and mean, uh, it's, it's like science. You know, you have someone who makes a discovery. The next generation of scientists sort of take it for granted because it's been proven scientifically. Right. So now that we're at the point we are now, these things we could take for granted because we know for a fact that they work. But we took the work of the, the early filmmakers to discover that and, and, and allow us to build on that at this point. Yeah, I mean, and there was really no way of testing it other than editing film when you get down to it. I mean, what mm-hmm. were you going to do? Put two actors on the stage, have one of them facing upstage, one facing downstage, deliver a line of dialogue, have them switch places and do it again? Well, you know, today we might use multiple camera angles. Right. You know, with, with several different cameras, you Where might you shoot switch. it from different perspectives mm-hmm. and, and have it all done that way. But, you know, back then it, it might not have occurred to anybody to do that or it might have been too expensive for them to try. Right. So a lot of the early, early films looked like... Like they were just film productions of like a stage show, you know. The camera sure. pretty much had a, f- a view as if you were sitting in the audience watching a, a stage production. Mm-hmm. So let's get to the point where they figure out, hey, we can edit. We can actually uh, take little bits. We can cut out stuff we don't need. We can switch perspectives. Everything's all right. Mm-hmm. Actually, that that opened up a huge world of possibilities in filmmaking. Yes, because let's say that Chris and I want to film a scene where the two of us are having a discussion, and we have found this amazing room to film the scene in, and we want one of us to have uh, a window to our back where, okay. with a beautiful vista. Unfortunately, the room we found, it's amazing, but it has a terrible view. But we right. found this other room that's terrible, but has an amazing view. Well, film editing, of course, allows us to film one side of that conversation in one room and the other side of the conversation in another room. It's taking place in two totally different times, in two totally different locations, edited together to make it look like a single time and place. And again, this was an amazing thing about film editing that had not existed before. There was no way of doing it. You had to have everyone in the same place at the same time in order to get something done. Mm -hmm. So how'd they do it? Well, they shoot the film. They shoot as much film as they need for as many takes as they need in each location. Right. And then they end up making a work print of the film so they're they're able to look at it in beyond the negative. They still have the negative, but they've made a work print. Mm-hmm. An editor goes through and views those scenes scene by scene uh, and then physically cuts up the film, physically tapes film together to create a new print – which usually we call like an editor's print or a rough cut. And then from that, you could look and say, all right, this is good. We need to shave a few seconds off this scene mm-hmm. or uh, this take uh, is is too long, that kind of stuff. It's a lot easier to cut than it is to add. Yeah, That's one of the big problems with the old, old wor- version of uh, film editing. Once you started cutting, you're really committing yourself. Right. Um, you didn't have a lot of opportunity to switch stuff out either. If you say, you know, this this other take worked a lot better than the one that you're using, it's a lot harder to switch that out using the old, old method of film editing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, this is a, a really painstaking process. And, uh, you know, it, it probably was a little easier for film editors than it was for sound editors when you had to listen to a thing and sort of guess where the tape was uh, when you would cut it because you couldn't actually see it. But, yeah, I mean, we're, we're literally talking about somebody sitting there the board with a light, you know, the uh, light table, mm-hmm. where you can actually see what's in each picture, and then you know, take the uh, the scissors, or I, I assume probably a razor blade, something that cuts, you know, pretty precisely, and and splicing the two together. Yeah, that's uh, uh, you know that that's that takes a lot of work. It's it's painstaking, and eventually. Um 
technology started to catch up to this te- technique, mm-hmm. uh, that's when you start seeing editing machines like the Moviola. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Moviola is essentially like a projector where you, it, it, it's a viewer to let you view what's on each frame of film. So you can go through and uh, look at a, a print of film. And then it also even has uh, the the uh, the stuff there so that you can cut the film where you want it to be cut. Uh, and then you would splice it together and you could view it again. Um, they're really loud machines. Old timey editors loved them. They swore by them saying that, you know, you just you would you would craft a film. You would build it frame by frame. And the editor was just as important a part of the, the picture as the director or producer. Uh because the editor really helped shape what the movie became. The, the director would do all the things about you know making sure people were giving the performances the director wanted, that kind of stuff. But the editor was the one who said, you know, this take is the perfect reaction, but it's a reaction to something that was said in this other take. So I'm going to be the one to combine the two. That's right. Don't forget, the editor is important. Yeah, I I am constantly reminded of that fact. Uh, I put a sign up in his cubicle so he doesn't forget. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And whenever I do anything wrong, big red ink. Uh, so that's that's the old style of film editing, you know, the actual physical cutting of film. And some of that still goes on today, depending upon how a, a particular film company is doing a particular shoot. But uh, a lot of the editing that you see these days, or a lot of the editing that that movie studios are are using, uh, involves digital editing. That's right, and um, you know, of course, this has been made possible by the uh, the advent of of the uh, low cost machines that we have today. Of course, it was uh, it's a lot cheaper to do now than it would have been even ten years ago. Um, and a lot of studios are thoroughly invested in, in using the technology. Um, of course, the uh, using technology like that to edit of a movie in post production goes back even to pre production. Because right. I mean, a lot of, in a lot of cases, they decide uh, the the uh, director and producer, I guess, decide who they want to use beforehand. Uh, go ahead and tell them, I guess, what they're going to do, what they have in mind, and then you know, once they've actually done all the shooting, then they bring the uh, the material back to the studio, and of course, um, that could be either film or you know an actual digital version of the uh, the movie as it exists you know directly after it's been shot right yeah you can uh, to do digital editing there are several different ways you can uh, you can go about it you mm-hmm. can either the probably the easiest way is you're using a digital camera to start with Oh yeah, because yeah. then you don't have to worry about any any kind of conversion. Yeah, you don't have to convert anything. You don't have to scan anything. You you just port the data from your camera over into the computer system, and then you can start editing. Uh, uh, porting, talking about you're capturing the video. Mm-hmm. You're capturing it from the camera and putting it into the the computer. Uh, that process can take a while, depending on how high resolution you are shooting and uh, the connection you're using between the camera and the computer. That's but right. but it's still faster than converting film to digital. Mm-hmm. Now, to convert film to digital, you've got a couple of different uh, options as well. You can use something called a telecine, mm-hmm. which uh, it, it it's sort of it's kind of like a scanner. In a, in a sense. And some scanners are called telecines and mm-hmm. vice versa. It, the, the terms are 
somewhat interchangeable, although purists will tell you that there is a distinct difference between the two. Oh, sure, sure. Uh, Telecine converts film to video formats, and uh, you may have heard us refer before about the different frame rates of film versus video. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 24 frames per second for film versus the 30 frames per second for video. Right. And that's in the U.S., uh, I should point out. That's not... That's not a global standard. Yeah. Um, it's different in different regions. It's a standard, but not the standard. Yeah, it's a standard in the United States and a few other countries. Um, so at any rate, because 24 and 30 don't match up quite right, you have to do some um, some trickery to get them to kind of uh, coincide cl- more closely. Mm-hmm. And then that can introduce some jitter. Uh, this is why if you watch a movie that's been converted to video, let's say you were watching an old VHS tape or you were watching a movie broadcast on TV, mm-hmm. you might notice that it doesn't look quite the way you remembered it looking when you saw it on the screen. Right. Um, and some of that's the conversion process. So right. uh, now uh, if you're using a scanner, some scanners, they'll just scan it in at the proper frames per second. Some telecines do, too, at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, well, so that you no longer have to worry about that. It's not it's not an issue. And so uh, you can digitally manipulate stuff at the same frame rate as you would um, if it uh, if you were just working on film right all the time. So you, you've moved the film into the digital format. Um and now you have two options, two big options available to you. Okay. You can either use the digital media to assemble your movie in the order that you want it in, like use, choosing the takes, choosing you know the, the transitions, all that kind of stuff, and, and, uh, and essentially making a video uh, checklist for the negative cutter. Mm-hmm. So what what you would do is once you've put your movie together, and again, the cool thing about digital is that it makes it really easy to, to switch stuff out. So let's say that you know you have two different, very different takes of the same scene, and you want to see how they both play out in the context of the overall film. It's not that hard to lift it one out and replace it with the other if it's all digital. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to do with film. Sure. Uh, for one thing, you have to pay more money just to get more film to do it. Mm-hmm. So you assembled your movie in video format. You hand that to your negative cutter. Your negative cutter goes back to the negative of the original film you shot and using the video as a guide assembles the movie. Right. So that's one way of doing it. That seems almost as painstaking as the uh, the original version. It the the middle process is not as pain, is not as painstaking because it is easier to edit once you uh, or it's easier to assemble the the movie in the way you want that part is easy yeah. uh, easier anyway um, but yes there is still quite a bit of of manual labor that you have to do hands on oh yeah yeah and it takes a real skilled cutter to make sure that you get what you captured in video because you definitely don't want to get to the point where you view the the negative version you know when you've made a print and you you think wait that doesn't follow what I made in the digital right, <laughs> part. Right. So your other option, instead of using that as a guide, you can actually print to film from your digital video. Mm-hmm. And in that case, what you do is you have you have film coming in. Uh, you manipulate it however you need to. You can do color correction. This this is actually where you get the most freedom as an editor. Right. You you digitize the the film print. Right. The original of the the the. Uh, film as it has been shot, right. and you take the material there on the computer. 
right. and then print it to film. Exactly. Okay. So so that way you can do things like color correction. You can do uh, you can do some effects. You can do lots of stuff that you could not do if you were just assembling the movie. Yeah. Right. Because I mean, if you're just assembling the movie and making a checklist, it's not like you could insert a huge special effect in the middle. Because you wouldn't have the film, like the the negative cutter would be like, all right, that's awesome. Uh, where is this? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, that's that's something that I think is worth pointing out too. You can do things with color, uh, even when you're doing you know a manual film edit, but it takes a lot more work because if you're going to do something like that, you have to go in frame by frame, you know, certain special effects and things that you want applied, and you've got a lot more freedom to do that with the digital process because you can add those things. In the computer that you you know would have to go in hand by hand and say if you wanted to uh, like all the famous movies that have been that were shot in black and white and were later colorized for TV and things um, you know that has to be done uh, you know if you're going to do that on for film that would be a real pain in the neck <laughs> yeah yeah to go in and, and, and actually paint the cells you know or the I should say the frames one by one that would be a real uh, a real pain in the neck to do and there are entire companies that that's all they do. Yeah, they take other people's films and then they they do color correction. I mean, you'll see that in the credits of a movie. If you look for it, you might see that there's color correction by such and such company. Sure. Um, but if you use this this digital intermediate process, you could, if you have an editor skilled at this, could actually have the editor do some color correction mm-hmm. without ever having to go to another company. Uh, chances are you probably still would have to because if you're transferring back to film, uh, then there's always the chance that just that transfer process means that you need to do some cleanup on your print before you start making uh, copies. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, I, I should have said there is one other option besides printing to film. Oh, yes? Yeah, distributing digitally. Ah, uh, good point. You don't have to go back to film at all. In fact, uh, if you did, you can either convert a film to digital and keep it digital or of course you could use the digital camera and it's just digital the entire time uh, and in either case you could distribute it digitally now the we, we talked about this a little bit in the other podcast it makes it a lot easier to distribute the film right uh, but on the flip side there aren't as many projectors that can run it right you have to have the equipment on the uh, at the uh, theater theater side, side. Yeah. otherwise it's sort of a moot point yeah you could send them a disc and then they said this is nice we have nothing that can play this yes yeah yeah if it's all the old style film projectors then it doesn't do you any good so uh, as technology catches up in the cinemas in the actual movie houses uh, that will become a bigger and bigger uh, push, I think. It's just because of the ease of use. I mean, the, the easier it is, uh, the more likely people will adopt it. Right. Um, now, there are those film purists who bemoan this fact because they think that it doesn't uh, have the same sort of uh, quality as the old films. And I can see their point. I mean, it there is there's an argument to be made for both using the old-style film editing and the digital editing editing methods. Um, And it's two completely different philosophies and two completely different uh, methodologies. When you're doing the old film editing process, you had to be OCD, really, because you had to be able to keep track of miles of film, Mm -hmm. right? And you're cutting film... And uh, you're going to have to keep track of all these different canisters of film until it's all put together. And it just it took organizational skills to a whole new level. I mean, you had to be an amazing organizational genius, really, to be a great film editor. Right. Uh, Now, a lot of that 
is done for you uh, with computers. That's that's one reason why they call the digital process a nonlinear editing process. Right. Because you can access any part of the movie at any time digitally once you once you've converted it into digital format or if you've shot it digitally then you already have it you can go to any part of that movie at any time and the computer essentially is keeping track of everything for you mm-hmm. now there's not really a standard way across all different editing suites that allows you to uh, to organize your data in a in a standard format so if you were trained on one kind of film editing software uh, you may actually have to learn a totally different Style. If you if the company you work for it switches, right? Right. Mm-hmm. It's not like they all f- have the exact same layout, so that's a downside. Um, I was going to talk a- also just really quickly about the scanners. Okay. Uh, it's also a time-consuming process, depending upon the equipment you have. Well, if you want it to be of any quality, yes. Yeah. So uh, let's talk about film quality. Here's another issue. People okay. talk about how film, the quality of film, may be higher than digital and. That was probably true, especially in the early days, but uh, it's uh, less true now. Um, yeah, I mean, that that's a, a fairly recent development. Right. I mean, just thinking about uh, the quality of, for example, consumer-grade uh, digital still cameras. You know, a lot of people were unwilling to switch, make the switch to a digital still camera because they said, well, you know, it's just not as good a quality as my film camera. Right. But, uh, you know, today... Uh, people take photos with their phones, the, the little cameras that are built into their phones, and expect them to be, you know, uh, good enough to print. Right. Uh, maybe not, you know, archival. Yeah. Maybe it won't be quality, blowing, blowing but, it up to the size of a building. But right. But, but you know, of course, uh, the people who are uh, in the movie studios have access to a much wider range and much uh, deeper range of equipment than than you or I would have. Uh, because they have deeper pockets, right? But uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's still you know only been the last few years, couple decades, right? And and Chris sent me a really good article from Editors Guild magazine. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was called "Digital Intermediate for Film," and in that article, uh, it's discussed about the, the the resolution of film versus the res- resolution of digital. So when you right. scan a movie in, are you losing resolution? Mm-hmm. And depending on the scanner you're using, yeah, you you do lose some resolution. And uh and also the higher resolution you're scanning to, the higher resolution you're converting into digital, the more information that the, the more data that that requires, right? Right. So if you're scanning a film and you want it to be as true as possible to the original film, that's going to result in an enormous file, mm-hmm. and it's going to, and that also means it's going to take more time just to capture the the film. So the example that uh, Editors Guild magazine makes was that right now the the what they call the gold standard for resolution in, in digital film is 4K, mm-hmm. which is uh, 4,096 pixels horizontally by 3,112 pixels vertically, and there there are actual digital cameras out there that can capture video at that resolution, at, at the 4K resolution. Right. Um, now, some purists will argue that film itself really ultimately could be up to 6K in resolution. Mm-hmm. However, that we're talking about that as a perfect negative 
a perfect negative could be at 6K resolution. Once you convert that negative into a work print, you lose resolution. And once you start copying from the work print to make your prints a film that you distribute, you lose even more. So by the time you see a film on the screen, it may be closer to 2K than 6K just through the whole process. So while film at its ideal is a higher resolution than most digital video, Mm -hmm. um, you don't see the ideal. So it doesn't really matter. Okay. No, that makes sense. So when you're scanning the the film, you have to choose what resolution you want to scan it at. Mm -hmm. And if you're scanning, the higher resolution you you use, the more information it's going to require and the more time it's going to require to scan. Uh, Until recently, that meant that it could take weeks to scan a film for, let's say, a a feature-length film. It could take weeks to scan all that film into 4K quality. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's gotten to the point now where there are some companies that have scanners that can, if, if you're if you're scanning it at 2K, which, remember, that's the resolution that most feature films appear in and once you get to the theater. Uh, if you're scanning it at 2K, you can do it in real time, so 30 frames per second. It's not a problem. Uh, if you want to do 4K, it tends to be a little slower, usually between 8 and 16 second, uh, 18 and 16 frames per second. So it, you're scanning it in at a slower speed than you would be playing the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, at least that's improved somewhat. So that's the editing process uh, in general. I, I guess we could actually talk about what you're doing when you're digitally editing films. Right, right. I mean, you're, you're cutting and pasting, but you're cutting and pasting pixels instead of... Uh, Instead of film, actual film frames. That's true. Actually, the uh, the consumer level uh, video editing programs that you might see uh, as part of, um, you know, just your your standard. I want to make a DVD to send to my grandparents type of uh, program, sort of like uh, iMovie, for example, for uh, for Macintosh. Mm-hmm. Um, I know there are several for uh, for Windows that that do essentially the same thing. These are you know fairly inexpensive pieces of software, and you might think that. They're uh, very dissimilar to uh, high-level programs. I'm sure professional editors would probably say they're completely different. Um, but essentially, the screen that that you look at when you're using these these programs, if you've seen any of these, they're they're really not all that dissimilar. You have a video uh, editing window where you can actually see where you are. Uh, it's like you would be you know looking at a particular frame of right. film, and then you have uh, a timeline. And you can take different pieces of video and drop them into the timeline to create uh, one long video segment. Um, and that's essentially what the video editor is is doing with that software now, um, or, or the movie editor, I should say. Uh, the thing is, um, you know, of course, the professional-level packages have uh, lots more capability. Yeah, there are a lot more features. So essentially the stuff that you get on your home computer it's really the same sort of program that the professionals are using. It's just a dumbed down version. Yeah, because most people don't simply don't need all of the the uh, special effects and the ability to uh, do a lot of color correction. Um, it's sort of like the difference in, if you will, Photoshop Elements versus the full version of Photoshop. It's just right. it's got far fewer features. Uh, as a result, it's more affordable to the average uh, consumer. But you know, if it's something that you're considering, if, you, if this sounds interesting to you as a career, uh, if you'd like to get into professional uh, motion picture editing, um, you know, you'd certainly get a feel of for what it's like using some of these, uh, you know, more simple programs, and then you know, you can perhaps invest in some education and, and try out some of the the more intense programs. I would recommend getting 
lots of hard drive space and a much more powerful processor. <laughs> right. <laughs> you can never have too much RAM or processing capability or uh, or hard drive space when you're doing this kind of work. Yep. And then you'll just go through the the whole process of you know, capturing the video from your from your recording device, whatever camera you're using, mm-hmm. the editing uh, process, and then rendering. Once you're done, yeah, and then you've we got just, your, uh, then you got your movie. We just simplified a whole bunch of the process. Yeah, rendering is easy. It takes no time at all. <laughs> I expect Tyler to run in here any second, <laughs> guys. Yes. Yeah. No. No. Rendering is what we call. That's the time when we walk into the video department and people are uh, playing video games or reading books or throwing things at each other. They just turn to you and say, "We're rendering right now," and you accept it and you walk out of the room like it's okay. Yes. I tried that uh, in my desk. I said, I'm writing right now, and that did not work at all. <laughs> I can't imagine why. Well, that, that wraps up a really good discussion about uh, video, uh, video movie editing. Um, and again, we've got so much more to, co- to talk yeah. about. So <laughs> yeah, so, we're going to put this research to good use. Right, right. We'll at have, some point. We'll have plenty more episodes in the future. Uh, but like we said, we'll give you guys a break so that you don't have to get overwhelmed by uh, by movie stuff too quickly. But if, uh, if there's a specific topic you want us to talk about about movies, obviously we've talked uh, about how we're going to discuss sound at some point and how they do that. Um, but yeah, I mean, anything else. And maybe eventually we will do an episode just on the red one. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'd really like to just because it's, uh, you know, apparently uh, the hot camera right now in the market. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, if you have any of those questions, you want to hear something specific about movie making or just technology in general, you can write us. Our email address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. And Chris and I will talk to you again really soon. If you're a Tech Stuff fan, be sure to check us out on Twitter. Tech Stuff HSW is our handle, and you can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash techstuffhsw. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. And be sure to check out the new Tech Stuff blog, now on the HowStuffWorks homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! 
Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 